All right, then. This is another edition of Chiron Talks uh, on Thursdays, as usual. And um, today we will again talk about um, open education, about digital skills, about the use of um, technology for education and um, related things. Again, we are together with Dominic Orr and Sabrina Konzok, or more precisely, Sabrina Konzok and Dominic Orr um, from Chiron. Sabrina is also involved in uh, social entrepreneurship in, uh, in Germany. And our special guest is Jehan Akiki from Lebanon, live with us now from New York. And um, she is, um, uh, her previous work creating education programs for refugees led her to realize the need to reform certification for all and start learning blocks. So learning blocks is the thing that she started. And we want to learn more about that and about how she deals um, with technology um, to help people learn more. Our uh, starting point today um, in um, a little story from each of us. So as I'm already talking, I just continue. Um, I learned this um, this week when I was on the countryside in South Germany that um, some people are preparing for harder times as my brother does. He has a little, well, a big garden and um, he has ducks and they had little ducklings now. And these ducks are special ducks who, who eat the snails, the snails that will eat all the, would eat all the, the vegetable. <laughs> yeah, the, veg the vegetable. So, and this was quite exciting for me to learn. And they were so cute, I can tell you. And um, this was all offline, uh, terribly offline. So um, it doesn't really add up to the discussion we will have today. But certainly, um, Sabrina, she learned this week. <laughs> Yes, hello from my side as well. Um, so what did I learn last week? Um, I kind of like two things, like it's the 80-20 rule, right? To do it better done than perfect. And also to, um, because obviously our jobs are very much um, brain heavy, um, to just do something with my hands when I'm out of, out of the job and in my free time. So I try to cement something. <laughs> that I brought from home. So it actually stands straight uh, like a, a small tree. And um, I learned that with cement, the 80-20 rule doesn't work quite well because then if you add too much water, then it creates too many bubbles and the thing breaks. <laughs> so for anyone who wants to do some some handicraft hobbies over the whatever, that's not a good idea. <laughs> so he should not ask you, I understand. So <laughs> Dominic, Dominic, what what what's your what's your story this week? Okay, so I was thinking about what I could say and I got told off by my mother earlier on this week <clears throat> because I was telling her I was doing a talk uh, which involved some of the uh, parliamentarians from the UK and I told her there was going to be a Lord Viscount Younger of Leckie. I'm sure he's not listening so I'm allowed to say that. She told me don't you dare say Viscount because it's Viscount. So that's what <laughs> I learned this week. Luckily, I didn't actually have to speak to him, just listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now we come to you, Jehan. You are a special guest and we want to learn more from you than ever before. So, um, and, there, and there are these, these ominous learning blocks and you and uh, what are you actually doing? But you're also allowed to tell an anecdote as well. Yeah, okay, no. Yeah. What's your <laughs> anecdote? That, that easily. No. Yeah, so what I learned uh, the, this past week, and actually maybe the past 
couple of weeks is that there are actually birds in New York in New York that chirp. So that's something that I had never uh, realized, you know, how prevalent nature is and that we actually do have natural ecosystems in the city. But because of lockdown and because of people and cars just not being on the streets, you can actually see nature, you know, being uh, reborn again and waking up. So I think that's been nice to wake up to the sounds of birds and not people honking. So that's uh, something new that I learned this week. That's so beautiful. <laughs> no, really, really. Okay, now, um, what, is this, what are these learning blocks you have started? Um, so I can tell you actually a bit about how I started learning blocks and you can know more about what it is. But basically, prior to starting learning blocks, I was building different education programs for refugees in Lebanon and in Jordan. And a lot of the programs that I was um, working on were around either digital skills and thinking or social entrepreneurship. And in both in Lebanon and in Jordan, um, everything that we were doing was considered non-formal education that was provided either by NGOs or uh, alternative education providers. And um, when I was uh, administering those programs, a lot of the students who were taking them would come up to me and ask me for certificates. And given that we were not a recognized education institution that, you know, if we gave them a certificate, people would know who we were, I started thinking about how to best showcase the skills that we were providing the students in a way that would allow them to take the education that we've uh, given them and transition to future education opportunities or even future employment opportunities. So, um, I realized that this was a major problem that a lot of refugees were facing, especially when I was in Jordan. I was working in the two biggest camps in Jordan for refugees, which were Zatari camp and Ezra camp. And over there, you really see the, the impact and the size of the problem because on any given day, dozens and dozens of NGOs that are providing different workshops, that are teaching so many relevant skills to what is needed right now, but no one was beyond the piece of paper on how to really um, prove that education. And so um, I realized the, the size of the problem. And then when I came back to New York, I was really getting into the blockchain space here. And um, it sort of clicked in my head that, you know, blockchain could be leveraged as a tool in order to uh, create a better certification system that can uh, issue permanent certificates that even if you don't uh, know the organization that is teaching and even wait, if... Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Dominic, um, certific certif certifying um, skills is one of your favorite topics, no? <laughs> um, but um, maybe you can tell us before um, Jahan goes further, what is really the difficulty here? Why is that, why is that important? Gosh, I feel very important now I've given, been given that task. Yeah, you're the, you're the professor in the round, that's why. <laughs> I think it really starts from exactly this point of thinking beyond the pieces of paper. I thought that was a great, a great quote. Um, certification is really this, if we think of it in an educational space, it's um, giving a recognition that somebody has actually taken part, part normally in a particular course and acquired the skills which were described in that course and then at the end of that, maybe they've done some kind of exam or they've proved in some way um, that they have the, acquired these uh, skills. And then it's documented. Normally speaking, 
when we're thinking of the formal education system, it's documented in such a way that we know, for example, what level of education it was. We also know something about the institution which uh, issued that certificate. And very often they are a public university or a public school. So we know at least intuitively something about those. And this is kind of when we get to the, the issue that we have at Kiron as well, which is what happens if the issuer isn't a recognisable organisation, so it's not kind of dis- not able to describe it or regulate it in the normal way, so it's doing something kind of unusual, which is often what we're trying to do in these spaces where we're trying to really solve some of these social problems. And um, so then you've got the problem that its main issuer is, and then you've got this other problem, which is because it's non-formal education, non-formal is often a bit more kind of um, holistic or, or let's say it's, it's about very specific tasks or very specific content. And so sometimes it's difficult to actually align it to a level. So these are the kind of issues you get to when you uh, start issuing non-formal um, certificates. So is it uh, Kieran as well? <laughs> My grandfather, you, you're, really, you're really a professor. My grandfather <laughs> always told me, Tini, you're, you're talking like a book. And it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> okay, but this is the, the, the one side. So people are trying to get ahead and they learn something and they want this somehow um, recognizable afterwards. And then there's the other thing that Jehan said. And there we are at uh, Sabrina's um, expertise. She said also uh, something about social entrepreneurs. So I understand this as, um, as an activity that helps you to get forward by making connections and, and building things, no? Or Sabrina, what is this exactly? Like social entrepreneurship in itself. Um, yeah, I would well, in this context here, yeah. Certificates. Um, I mean, like, of course, like we have a good example in the room, right? Of how that can look like in real life. But when it comes to certification um, in the non-formal education sector, I would throw in a different experience actually. Um, because as you may know, like I was with the Red Cross before and um, all the work you do there, especially with the young volunteer, if it's trainings in like emergency response or, you know, in first aid or whatever. I mean, those are all super relevant skills that especially Corona right now um, is, are needed more than ever. Um, but certification there is another thing as well, right? Like how do you actually portray and like as we're all Germans here um, in, in the Red Cross at least, uh, people really love their standards, right? So you can even have fights between different branches. And I hope they're not listening now, but about, you know, like what kind of plasters you can use and what kind of plaster you're not allowed to use. In the end, like it just matters that you can a wound from bleeding, right? Um, and I feel that's a bit the parallels that we have in those discussions as well, because what really counts, um, sometimes it's not as much like how people learned it, right? Or how long they took to learn it or by whom they were trained, it really matters if they can do it afterwards, right? So um, like the, your approach is super interesting because it seems like a way to get a bit closer to that. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, we oh, we should go on to the example in a second or to what you're doing, but I just want to say what happens very often is as soon as you start thinking of, you know, an unusual set, okay, we're, going, we're supporting refugees, it's about non-formal education, you start asking critical questions of the whole kind of learning process, not to ask when it's about formal education. 
So the things we're going to be talking about now equally apply very often to the formal education system. It's important to say is often we kind of just accept those because we say, okay, we know roughly there is a university called Bath University or something, so we just accept that everything's fine. And that's one of the biggest challenges is because you're in the non-formal sector, you don't have this kind of first level of acceptance. And then all these challenges that the normal certificate would also have come into um, this non-formal space. And so that's why I think this um, of connecting, thinking about non-formal education to just thinking about how we need to reform education in general is really important because we just see <laughs> well more let's start there. right now <laughs> <laughs> no exactly i definitely agree with that and i think that in a way um starting um innovating and testing in the non-formal space is sort of like a low-hanging fruit where um, because it's non-formal regulated in different ways you can really experiment with how to create a better and more equitable education system in a way that in the traditional education sector, it's really hard to change things because um, more so than other industries and other sectors, education itself is very rigid and it has a lot of barriers to entry and certification is actually one of those barriers to entry and yes. actually not necessarily certification, but more accreditation because at least in the US, I think in, in um, Europe, it's a bit different, but in the US, in order to be an accredited university, you actually have to spend around a million dollars every three to five years just to maintain your accreditation status. Um, you need around 5,000 hours of admin work. And all of these, you know, if you're a small uh, education provider, you're not going to spend a million dollars just to say that you are official when you can spend that million dollars on improving your education content, on really, you know, uh, teaching uh, students. So because of that, I think that accreditation in a way is uh, one of the, one basically barriers for new entrants in the education space to actually become formal. And so what, um, the way that I view, it, view certification is that it's essentially a proof of learning to show the skills that you've acquired through education and to show it in a way that is trustworthy so that you can, so that the next person looking at it, whether it's another educator or an employer, can trust that you've learned those skills through that education program and then can evaluate you whether and, and see whether you're suitable for the next education program or the next uh, education pro. Uh, I mean, or for, and so, that is essentially the credentialing system that we're building. So we are in, in our certificates, we uh, basically create us through uh, blockchain technology, but, but even like I, I see blockchain as just a tool. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the heart of it. It's just, it's a tool that allows us to create timestamped records that are where the identity of who is issuing the certificate, which is the education provider and the student are verified at the time of issuance. And everything that is put on the certificate is actually put by the education provider so they can vouch that this was their student and that they've done you know, that course. And then what we add to the certificates are actually attachments of, uh, and it's also up to the education provider to uh, decide what attachment they want to add, but generally, it's course syllabus as well as final projects or any sort of uh, learning outcome that the student has done in that course. And in doing that, the certificate becomes personalized. 
meaning that if you and I took the same course, we might have had very different results. So our certificates reflect the education and the skills that we've personally and individually lived. And um, I personally think that's a better indicator rather than the traditional formal education uh, certificate, which really doesn't have any indication on you know, what you've actually done in the course. So for example, my undergraduate degree is all in Latin, like I don't even understand it. So I can't really take it to you know, someone and, uh, and vouch for my education. What it does is it's more institution-centered. It says it's, I graduated from this university and the, the recognition of that university is basically what people judge me on rather than what I learned, what I did, you know, what are the experiences that I've had throughout education. But, yeah. but I don't understand what has blockchain to do with all of that. I don't understand how it works. So blockchain essentially is um, a new technology that was created 11 years ago. So um, it's still relatively very new and there's a lot of improvement that is happening and that will keep on happening in the blockchain space. But essentially what it is, is a better database. And the reason why it's a better database is because it's a distributed database meaning that instead of putting everything on one computer or in a central uh, system, everything that you record on the blockchain is actually um, stored on a network of computers that they put on the blockchain on a single computer that network that you know are the the blockchain each record that you put on the blockchain because of how it's verified and how it's created um is essentially something that you cannot change so once you put something on the blockchain and uh, it's uh, it's usually a transaction that happens and in the case of education the transaction is between the education provider and issuing the certificate for the student when you put that on the blockchain uh, you're time stamping it and you're putting it on there so that no one can remove it and no one can change it. And so in the case of learning, the reason why this is um, a great technology for record keeping is that even let's say if the organization that provided education no longer exists, that record exists forever. So you don't need to go back and find the, the professor or find the institution to say, I taught that student. The record itself has all the proof that you need regardless of whether the organization exists. At the same time, it's sent to the student, so the student owns their education record and can share it with whoever they want. And right now, even though you technically like own your, um, your degree, like you have it, if you were to apply to graduate school, let's say, you do have to go back to your, you know, and get your transcript, get more copies of your degree. So technically, the, your university still controls your diploma and still controls your transcript. And this is something, you know, it, sh it should be in the hands of the student to really share their education with whoever they want and build upon it. And so the, the third thing that blockchain allows you to do is that once the student has an identity on the blockchain, which is basically what the certificates are sent to, the student can, receive certificates from different education providers so all of their certificates can be stored in one place or under one uh what is in called public address so you can essentially mix and match different education records and have them all sent to the same place in the blockchain so that you have a portfolio of various degrees that you control 
So mm. that, that's what blockchain enables me to do. It's, it's literally just a tool, you know, and I think there's a lot of hype about blockchain and what it can do, and it can't do everything, you know. What it can do is basically in record keeping, traceability, and tracking. And I think that's, that's really what it's best for. Hmm. Yeah, so it's good for the record keeping. Um, and the interesting point is, I was thinking before, maybe for sometimes not to talk about certificates, but just documents. Because in a way, what we're thinking about always when we're thinking of certificates is documenting learning. And this is why you say as well, so we have kind of criteria in there of, of uh, what you did to, to receive this document from a particular issuer. And then this document, as you say, I think that's when it becomes really interesting, can have evidence, particularly of assignments and things that you've actually done to uh, prove that you've got these skills or competencies. And then the interesting question is always, okay, if I've got this document, where should I put it or where should it be put so that the learner can have um, full ownership of this document? And I think there this question of whether a blockchain can play the role there. Um, and I think, it, as you said, that that can create a kind of a, a backbone or maybe it's better to say it creates a wallet where um, the learner can start collecting things from different uh, people. Yeah, exactly. And then they would, so one of the issues we've always thought about with um, certificates at, at Kiron is if you actually start generating certificates, um, at what point would it make sense for the learners to just photocopy those and change the names on them? Yeah, exactly. You know, and you can always say, well, I mean, how often is that going to happen? But well, it happens a lot, especially with, um, with the accredited, and especially with, for example, Ivy League schools in the US. A lot of people, you know, say they went to Harvard and they didn't go to Harvard. Yeah. They just use the name, and so degree fraud elimination is actually um, uh, something that the blockchain or value that blockchain records uh, provide because you know who went to your school and you issue them certificates, and then you can verify that transaction on the blockchain in order to make sure that the certificate was issued to that particular student. I think it's always interesting to think of this exactly in this context of trust as well. So we have to think of what is the use case. Really, we're always thinking of how can we make sure the learner has value from what <clears throat> we're giving to them. And, of course, most students will say, OK, I always get a, a clear value if I've got a, a degree certificate because I know that gets me through the, the, the first door often for interviews and things like that. <clears throat> we have to, can we create something like that that has this kind of value when it's about non-formal education or non-formal learning? And maybe this helps. I think this is part of your argument that if you can at least prove, okay, we have verified the identity on the one side and we've we verified also the issuer on the other. So we know <clears throat> this transaction which is documented there actually happened and we know when it happened as well. Is that, that's kind of the strength, I think, of this solution. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say that verification is a very big part of it. The the other two, I would say, are immutability and permanence. So the fact that you can't change the record. So one, identity of both is verified. The second is change the record. So let's say if I took um, like an intro to coding class and then 
I was an average coder, but then I worked a lot on myself, you know, the best. And so I can't go back and change what I did in my intro to coding course, but I can show the progress, which is also, you know, a value. And third is permanence. So the fact that it will exist for forever and it's very hard to remove and practically impossible to take things from the, the blockchain. But Jehan, let's let's uh, shift a little bit. Um, I also read that you had to do something with education policy. So, um, what is what is that uh, part of your life? Uh, so it was actually a program that I was I was a part of. Uh, I think it was end of 2018 till pretty much uh, summer 2019, and it was about um, basically this. Um, policy center and uh, asked uh, different people who have worked around uh, refugee integration and refugee education or uh, employment in the Middle East to um, go through through a policy uh, cycle and drive policy briefs around our work. And so what I had uh, written on, which I actually also uh, shared at UNESCO in 2018, is um, how to lay down foundations for 21st century education and to help uh, non-formal actors, especially NGOs, uh, be able to administer that education. So part of my uh, work, and, and which also led me to, to learning blocks, is realizing that in the case of Syrian refugees in the Middle East, a lot of the effective education provided through NGOs whether they were international NGOs or even you know newer, let's say like tech and based NGOs. But the problem for them was that a lot of funding that was given to uh, for education usually went through the national official system where, for example, in Lebanon, um, the national education system is very problematic and has a lot of uh, issues to begin with and was at capacity because of uh, Syrian refugees that even has more Syrian refugees than Lebanese people using it. And there were so many issues there that students were actually not continuing their education, but still all the money was going towards the formal sector. And so part of my uh, policy argument was to show that in order to provide the kind of education and to learn the skills that are needed to be part of you know, the 21st century economy, NGOs are doing a better job to providing that. And so it was about how to kind of decentralize funding in a way and give it to NGOs rather than going through the problematic national systems. But that is super interesting um, because I didn't know that actually about you. Um, but I think it was even the very first Karen talk session we had um, where we were challenged by another speaker actually um, exactly on that non-formal education and um, 21st century skills and I think we picked the skill of problem solving right yeah. and then it was also like isn't it just a hype and uh, aren't 21st century skills just something uh, now people make up you know to kind of also <laughs> legitimize non-formal education like what would you tell him uh, in response to that well I actually think that uh, 21st century skills are definitely not a hype but I think that the formal uh, system and education system is not made to teach 21st. And I actually had a first-hand experience with, with that. So in the first education program that I uh, set up, which was a, which came out of all 21st century foundations for education, we uh, used design thinking as a way to target some of the 21st century soft skills, which are problem solving, critical thinking, presentation, teamwork, collaboration. 
And um, the program that we did actually had three pillars. One was digital skills, which are more, you know, like hard 21st century skills. The second was uh, design thinking. And the third was art therapy and social and, emotion and emotional learning through the art. And uh, which is really important in the case of refugees, because if you don't target mental health, you can't really do education. And, uh, but in the design thinking portion, that was actually the most challenging one. And it wasn't challenging because the students were refugees. It was actually challenging because of the educational systems in the Middle East that were all about, you know, memorization based, regurgitating information. There wasn't a lot of room for thinking about problems and thinking out of the box. And we had to, so we had um, uh, like a curriculum, I would say, or a schedule of how to do the design thinking process. And we were changing it every day because each section, you know, like let's say problem definition took so long and it was very hard to convey, you know, how to think about a problem beyond just the problems. For example, thinking about girls' education and saying, you know, the problem is not just that girls don't go to school. There are underlying issues that prevent girls from going to school. And so and that was very challenging. And I realized how um, unequipped people are when they're coming from traditional education systems to really figure out how to learn. And I think that the biggest um, 21st century skill is learning how to learn and unlearn and how to adapt. And, and you know, those are some things that traditionally education stops at a point, whereas now it never really stops because you're because of how fast the economy is changing, how fast traditional jobs are changing, irrelevant. So I think there's people don't uh, like we're still starting the, the pathway of changing education and of really changing how we think of education. So someone who thinks in a very traditional way of you learn this, you do an exam, then it's done, you don't touch that subject again. They're, they're going to think that 21st century skills are not that needed. But then if you think of education as something that's beyond the classroom and that's always happening, you realize that the best way is through those soft skills and through nurturing those soft skills. Um, you're talking about the 21st century. Man, you, you're recognizing that we're just at the beginning, no? So yeah. <laughs> to challenge your philosophical skills. So what do you expect the skills in this um, very young century are going to be? Uh, I can give you a straight answer for that because I, I think want the straight that, answer right now. Yeah, <laughs> because I think that it's always going to keep on changing. You know, so think coding is like what everyone needs to learn. But I think that there's going to come a point where machines are going to code. So we don't even need to learn how to code. I mean, it's obviously a great skill, but I don't think everyone should learn how to do it. I really think it's critical thinking, problem solving and adapting. I think that the whether it's in education or even in in life in the 21st century, I think people need to learn how to adapt. And I and COVID-19 is the greatest example of how, you know, you have to be flexible and nimble and constantly adapting. And I think this is something that is, you know, like the growth mindset or learning how to learn is probably the, the most important skill. Totally, because what I sometimes feel is that um, when we talk about us living in a like Western hemisphere, right, um, we are really unused to to adapt, right? Because at least for me, like we were told, like you plan your studies and you plan your job with what you choose in your studies, right? And you kind of have the feeling there's like a bit roadmap ahead and you just have to follow it somehow and, and get through it. Um, and in other countries, right, when you're struggling with more insecurities, like either if it's climate or, 
or economical insecurities or even political ones, right? Um, then you're much more used to the need to adapt. Like, although it's, you know, like bad reasons why you have to, but um, it, that's something like I have seen during Corona as well, right? Like people are really like in shock when this bubble <laughs> starts to shake a little bit. Um, yeah, that's funny. I mean, being Lebanese, I think that uh, because we've had a lot of political uncertainties and problems in uh, Lebanon, you always learn how to <laughs> to adapt. And it was actually funny. So uh, as you all probably know, you know, Le uh, New York is, and is one of the epicenters for coronavirus. And I remember having a lot of discussions with my, you know, uh, like for me, it was easier so that's, I guess, for everyone else, it was like planning evacuation and escape routes out of the city and, you know, uh, <laughs> buying all the toilet paper and just doing so many things because it's, you know, people are not used to adapting. I would say, though, that even in countries that do have conflict, within education, um, education is still, like, for example, if we take the case of Lebanon, uh, maybe on a societal level and a personal level, people are used to adapting, but the education system is very rigid and and it is actually a western education system because a lot of it was inherited from the french system and was adapted to to lebanon so it's still very like and very all about you know going through school graduating taking the official exams then uh, the, the people you know either want to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer and it's just very rigid pathways which i think um, will change, but it's, and I see that also in India and in other um, developing countries where, you know, people adapt naturally, but their education is still pretty inflexible. Yeah, I think actually education systems, you're right, they, they suggest firstly, okay, within the education system, there's going to be a stability around you. And then afterwards, we let you into the world and then you can do what you like kind of thing. So and this, is, <laughs> and this is exactly the thing that when you come with questions, OK, what should we do with, you know, 21st century skills like critical thinking and resilience and things? They say we can't deal with it within this formal system because we don't know how to teach that. We don't know how to examine that. We don't know what the certificate would look like. And um, the interesting thing is then when you think of other settings, sometimes you get to more kind of innovative ideas. So I wanted to ask you, you're in farms, not arms, and you were working, I think, in uh, with with farmers, I think, in, uh, in I forget, was it also in the Lebanon, maybe? And I think you were helping them yeah. learn some skills. So how, what kind of skills or what, what was the program there and how was that organized? Yeah, so Farms and Arms is actually still an ongoing project. We, uh, the way it started is, um, is essentially around how do we help refugees have more food security? And, um, and I started building it with an NGO here in New York. It's called Peace Accelerators. And then, so it started under, under the NGO, but evolved into a consortium of different people in agriculture, architects, engineers who uh, came together to uh, design a hybrid agricultural system, and so essentially, what we the 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 whole process from or stemmed from design thinking and systems thinking, and started by engaging refugees, understanding what they what how they're eating, how they're planting, how they're working in agriculture, and what are the problems that they're facing. And so we did design sprints in Lebanon for that, 
then came to New York and invited different multidisciplinary experts who have built everything from biodynamic farms to urban farms. Uh, like one of our partners in this project is their um, the firm's called Agritecture, and they do you know a lot of urban agriculture consulting. Then we also had architects, engineers, and we developed this and. Everyone who was involved sort of became part of uh, a team that developed this uh, hybrid agricultural system that combines regeneration, which is um, actually a very ancestral way of doing agriculture that's been forgotten and that really improves soil health by keeping carbon in the soil. And um, when you do that, you're actually contributing to climate change. And it's actually one of the uh, least talked about solutions for it, where you actually improve the soil but then keep the carbon in the soil and uh, we mix we're mixing this with adapted hydroponics that help uh, help you have better more nutri nutritionally dense uh, vegetables that are grown with less water and less soil and the, the whole farm design that we've built out is actually an, an educational farm that helps um, participants learn those skills to be able to plant regeneratively and to, um, to build uh, hydroponic systems. And so, the, the, and this is sort of an, like an experiential uh, education uh, provision. And when, when this uh, project started, there were no talks about education. It was only about a better way for refugees to have food security. And we even realized through our design process that we can't even do that without having the host involved in the whole project because if you you can create food insecurity if you create social conflicts. But but regardless of that, like what food really even turned into an education program because ultimately to be able to adapt and, and learn different uh, or to be able to even eat in a different way, you need to learn different skills and harness them. So. So yeah, so it is uh, like an experiential educational farm. And so, we're- Jahin, you are um, in New York, but you're still like your main focus is helping refugees in Lebanon. Is it still like this now that there are 1.5 million refugees from or being in, in Lebanon in this very small country? What, what situation are you now reacting to? Well, that's actually why I, I think he, well, I was gonna. I was saying that that's actually why I started focusing on refugees in Lebanon. So before I started working with refugees, I was actually working with slum dwellers in India. And throughout my my education, especially my master's education, which was very experiential education as well, um, I realized that I'm really passionate about um, helping people to opportunities especially people who are marginalized or considered, you know, living in informal settlements. And so um, with slum dwellers in India, and, and it was actually a great experience uh, working in Mumbai for three months. But when I was there, it was the peak of the refugee crisis in Lebanon. And that was 2014, 2015. So around that time, I was thinking, you know, what am I doing in India when I when there's the biggest refugee crisis happening in my own home country. And a, there's a lot of parallels between slum dwellers and refugees, with refugees being an even more extreme case of marginalization and informalization, because 
Uh, some dwellers are sort of informal in their own country. They're still citizens, whereas refugees are not citizens. There, that's an added layer of of problems. But because because of that, I um, I was focused on um, focusing on refugees, and then from that was working on at Parsons and New School was working on creating systemic solutions for the refugee crisis, and that led me to focus on education to employment, and then from that, working on education boot camps. So that's sort of been my trajectory. But yeah, I mean, I am, so I'm not just focused on Lebanon, but I definitely, it is one of my main focuses just because I'm Lebanese and I see Lebanon, especially right now, as facing a lot of problems that uh, in a way, it's ahead of the world and a lot of the problems that might happen in other countries. And so um, I see Lebanon as a great place to test out some of those uh, solutions and then, you know, that could be adapted to different locations. So for example, with Farms Not Arms, we've um, interest from, from a lot of different countries, uh, whether it's in the US, also in Gambia, in Greece, in Turkey, in, um, in Tunisia, different places that need um, similar similar solutions and with learning blocks as well like it started within the refugee space but um with the problem is way bigger than refugees there's you know a lot of people are learning in non-formal ways and they don't even have to be um refugees or marginalized it just makes more sense in, a, in even the upskilling market you know so uh, like higher education i think has been on the decline past 14 years whereas coding boot camps, online courses, uh, workshops, you know, have been booming. And so, so I see, you know, like a lot of the things that I'm working started in Lebanon, but have a lot of different use cases. Well, we come to the end of our time. It's actually a something and we have to, conclu <laughs> we have to conclude. I was in Lebanon a few years ago and I saw um, this incredible stone carved out of the rock near Baalbek, this um, temple complex the Romans built. Yeah. And there's, there's this stone which they not completely carved out of the rock. I think it's the biggest brick in the world with five per five per 25 meters. Can you imagine this thing? And it wasn't still in, in, a, in a vertical way uh, fixed to the, to the rock and it wasn't torn out yet. They had a lot of, well, well first, what was it? 21st century skills then. Well, that's nonsense. It was a beautiful country, but I didn't really get... I would like to know more about how is the situation in, in Lebanon, but we don't have the time. We don't have the time. So, um, everyone just um, um, say something concluding to the moment, and then we got to get the... Gotta... Okay, so that, then I just started. Um, so it was for sure so nice having you and uh, just with our other guests, like we could talk for a few hours <laughs> from here. Um, but uh, I don't know, like I, I wish you all the best on your mission to make um, non-formal education more um, tangible and more um, valued. And um, like just thinking of all the stuff that I did in, in youth organizations, like they're not on my CV anymore. Um, so I would love to see that in the future, right? That not just the, the formal education is on there, but maybe like a whole matrix of, of what you acquired in all different internships and, and youth groups and I don't know what, um, because I feel there's so much more to what, what makes you a valuable employee or citizen or whatever. Um, so thanks so much for sharing and um, yeah, all the best for your work. Thank you.
I don't really have anything to add to what Sabrina said because that was basically what I was going to say as well. Especially Dan, <laughs> when we, we when we hear everything you've done, I'm sure there's no one document or no one place where we can where, where it can all be found. And I think yeah. we know we have that problem, but many many other people have it much worse than us because.